I have always uh, liked the statement that Bilbo Baggins made at his birthday party. In fact, if I could remember it and keep it straight, I would probably use it from time to time. He said, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like. And I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. What I discovered this week when I Googled that quote is, people aren't sure exactly what he meant. But I think we could all agree that one thing is clear from that quote and from life, that relationships are complicated. That relationships can be messy, whether it's in your home and your family or whether it's at work or in the neighborhood. Wherever it may be, relationships sometimes are tough. And the reality is that we don't always get to choose our relationships, right? We are born into a family. We don't get to pick our family. Now, we might get to pick our spouse and through them our in-laws to some degree, but family. You work at some place and you may choose that occupation and you may even know some of your coworkers, but guess what? Coworkers leave, new coworkers come, and you don't always have a choice about those relationships. You move into a neighborhood, and you may know the people who live on either side of you, but they may up and move. And you get new neighbors and new relationships. Generally, we choose our friends, but then our friends have friends that kind of get brought into the orbit of our lives, and relationships can just be complicated. And a church, a local church, is built on relationships. But what are they supposed to be like? How are we supposed to interact with one another? How are we supposed to have grace-grounded relationships? In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, Paul talks about that. And so, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or on your electronic device. Find that passage that begins with these words, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Paul starts to talk about relationships by talking about our relationship with God. And he says, we have been chosen by God. And you go to Ephesians, the parallel book, before eternity passed, he chose us. We have been set apart to be holy and set apart as holy to God. And we are deeply loved by God. You could summarize that by saying God has given us grace. And now Paul is going to say because we have been graced, because this is who we are in Christ, it is important that we work out grace-grounded relationships. That's a core value of Berean. We must take the grace that has flowed into us and let it go out, especially to the believers around us. Last week, we talked about a different core value. We talked about Christ-centered transformation. But the truth is, these two are, are linked together because we don't do transformation just in isolation. We are working together at being transformed. Together, we're rubbing rough edges off each other. And the truth is that as we are transformed, it will show in our grace-grounded relationships. 
And so for a few moments this morning, I want us to look at Colossians 3. And I want us to think about what Paul lays out for us about grace-grounded relationships. In this passage, I see at least five identifying marks of those kinds of relationships. Marks that we can use to evaluate ourselves because that's what this is about. It's not about saying, well, that person needs to do better. It's about saying, where do I need to improve here? So that we as a church together can demonstrate grace-grounded relationships. And so in verse 12, Paul begins by telling us that grace-grounded relationships are others-focused. That they have other people, not self, at the center. Put on then, that's a command Paul says. It's an urgent command. Put on this new clothing. Put on clothing that will help with your relationships as you live them out. And then Paul talks about who we are, those phrases we just looked at, chosen ones, holy and beloved. And he says, dress in this way for successful relationships. And he lists five virtues Probably the counter to the five verses, or five vices, rather, that he mentions back in verse 8 when he talks about anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. Now he says, here are five virtues that are part of good relationships, virtues that are others focused, virtues that really can only be practiced in community, that can only be practiced in relationships compassionate hearts, caring for the needs of other people more than we're focused on ourselves. Somebody who has the opposite of a compassionate heart is Lucy Van Pelt from the Charlie Brown series. So in honor of the World Series, Charlie Brown is pitching and a line drive comes right back at him. And Lucy says, Charlie Brown got hit on the head with the ball. Linus says, here, run over to the drinking fountain and soak this handkerchief in cold water. She says, you're kidding. With a head like Charlie Brown's, you'll need a bed sheet. That's not compassion. And Charlie Brown recognizes that. He says, I'm dying and all I hear is insults. Compassion. Knowing when others are hurting and caring for them. Paul also talks about kindness, which is not too different, but the idea is that we're sensitive to what other people need. We want them to do well. We want what is best for them. Humility, not exalting ourselves, but instead we value others and we lift them up as we go down. Meekness. Some have defined that as power under control. I would say meekness is is having power, having rights, but not insisting on them. Being willing to surrender those for the good of other people. And then patience. We talked a lot about that last week. Patience is putting up with difficult people without retaliating. Why? Because we're focused on them and we're focused on what's good for them, not how they are so irritating to us. So we're willing to set that irritation aside and have patience with them. Grace-grounded relationships mean that we are others-focused. 
And I'm really thankful as I look around. I see a lot of that. I see some of you sitting out here right now that I know are compassionate and kind and are working behind the scenes to minister and to help people, and most of the church doesn't even know it. I'm also thankful because I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and heard some of the horror stories of COVID from pastor friends and from some of the speakers. And as I reflected on that, I I thought, you know, I am really thankful that people at Berean were willing to say, you know what, that's probably not how I would have handled COVID as a church or as a pastor, but okay, I'll go along. And that's how most of you responded, and that's an other's focus as we try to balance some of that stuff. And then in COVID and coming out of COVID, we went to two services and That probably wouldn't be any of our real preferences, but we can't put everybody on a given Sunday in this worship center, and we certainly don't have classroom space for our adult and kids' classes if we were all in one hour. And most of you said, you know what? Wouldn't be my preference, but okay. This is what we need to minister to other people. Or maybe you don't like how an event was organized. Maybe, you know, you'll, you'll come and you'll say, boy, I would not have organized trunk or treat that way, Pastor Jim. But you say, you know what? I'm going to minister. That's more important than what I would prefer. Or maybe as a pastor, somehow I've let you down, or your deacon has let you down, or your, your Sunday school leaders have let you down. But instead of lashing out, you say, I'm, I'm just going to focus on the fact they're human. Or maybe the music, maybe, maybe Larry's music last week or the music this morning wasn't your preference. But you say, you know what? There were other people who were really worshiping and enjoying, and that's good, even if it isn't what I would have chosen today. Grace-grounded relationships are others-focused. And so it's an opportunity for us to step back and say, hmm, how am I doing with that? Am I more concerned with me or with the believers around me? Grace-grounded relationships also respond with grace when wounded. See, if we are others-focused, when somebody hurts us, when they wound us, we'll respond differently than if we're self-focused. Because if we are self-focused and somebody hurts us, somebody violates our rights, man, we let them have it because it's all about me. But Paul writes, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Bear with each other. Accept the irritations and the shortcomings and the hurts that will come. Because when you're in a relationship with people, guess what? They will let you down. They will irritate you. They might even hurt you. It's part of the messiness of relationships. And yet Paul says, when that happens, put up with each other. Let go of of the anger or the frustration or the hurt. And then he says, forgive. Forgive each other if, and Paul's a realist, The if there doesn't indicate, well, it might happen. It indicates reality. If you have a complaint against another, 
If somebody has fallen short of what you think they should do, if you somehow have a blameworthy accusation against another person, forgive. Now, if it's intentional, you may have to go to that person and biblically seek to resolve it. But the reality is most of the time, those hurts, those slights, are just because people are thoughtless, are just because I'm self-focused that day instead of focused on others. And Paul says we need to forgive. It's a command. Instead of lashing out like verse 8 with anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk, we let go. We forgive. Why? Because it's commanded and because the Lord has forgiven us. And He's forgiven us far more than anything we would have to forgive someone else for. Grace-grounded relationships respond with grace when they're wounded. So I don't know if there's something that stands between you and another believer today, but if so, you need to work at dealing with that. Either bury it and forget the grudge, forget the hurt, or go and talk to them and resolve it. Or if you're the one that has caused the hurt and you know it, Go to that person and seek the forgiveness that they need to give. Several years ago, I read an article about the Apology Hotline. I actually Googled it this week to see if it still exists. It does in a little different form. But the idea when it was invented, when it came up, the man who came up with it was that people could call into a phone number and leave a message of apology just generally. Here's what he said, apologize for anything, say you're sorry. The idea is to make yourself feel better. See who's the focus? I'm just hoping that these people will feel better about themselves just by getting whatever's bothering them off their chests. Doesn't work that way. You got to go to the person, not some anonymous phone message, and ask for forgiveness. And if you're the one being asked, you need to respond with grace. We need to give others grace, give them the benefit of the doubt, seek to restore relationships, even if we have to humble ourselves to do it. Because grace-grounded relationships respond with grace when wounded. Grace-grounded relationships also cultivate real unity They work hard at keeping the connectedness with other believers. It's a priority. Paul writes, And above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That unity is based on a call to love each other. And this is the agape love. This is the Christ-like love. This is the love when the other person doesn't deserve it. It's the sacrificial love. It's the love that seeks what is best for the other person, even if it isn't what you would like. And Paul says that love binds everything together. And that binding together is the same word Paul uses in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, for ligaments. <clears throat> he says love is what ties everything together in perfect harmony. The question is, what's the everything? 
Some think he's talking about verse 12, that love is what binds all those five virtues together. It's what kind of goes over them like an outer cloak. It's what motivates those virtues for other people. And that could very well be. But I think contextually, Paul is talking about it binds the believers together in perfect harmony. Certainly back in chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about the same thing when he says, we are knit together in love, that love is what ties the whole body of Christ, the church, together. And that love flows into peace. As Paul writes, let the peace of Christ, the peace that Christ made with us by His death, burial, and resurrection, the peace that we have with God because of what Christ did that now moves out so that we have horizontal peace with each other as well. He says, let that peace rule in your heart. The word rule is an interesting word. It really means to referee or to umpire. So let the peace of God umpire your heart so that when anger and bitterness try to infiltrate your life, your heart, the peace of Christ says, you're out of here. You're gone because peace is my priority with this person. Let the peace of Christ rule. Now, that's not peace at any price. In the context of the whole book, Paul would say, you always stand for truth. You never compromise the truth. But it is a willingness to sacrifice our preferences, and our rights for peace and unity. It's a willingness to say, well, I would probably have liked things done this way, but you know what? Our relationship, our peace is more important than that. A lot of times when I'm doing premarital or marital counseling, I will tell couples, don't sweat the small stuff. Because it's amazing how much little things sometimes eat away at relationships And I'll say to them, you know, it really doesn't matter whether you squeeze the toothpaste tube from the bottom or the middle. Don't sweat the small stuff. It really doesn't matter whether the toilet paper goes over or under, though we all know over is right. (laughs) You don't sweat the small stuff. Instead, you say, you know what? My peace with this person is far more important than that issue. Peace arbitrates in our relationships, our differences, our cultural differences, our personality differences, our preferences, because we put others first. And we need that love and that peace and that unity because Paul says we were called in one body. We are one body bound together by love in unity. And when the body is at war with itself, guess what we call that? Disease. And when the body of Christ is at war with itself, it's a diseased body. There are always some people in every church or every gathering that love a good fight. And Paul says that's not what it's about. It's about peace. At the conference I mentioned, I was leading a business session for our state association. And before the business session began, one of my pastor friends, I'll put that in quotes, 
said to me, you know, I'm going to bring up this really controversial issue because he just likes to stir the pot. And I said, well, you know, as chairman, I have broad discretionary powers, and if you bring it up, I'm ruling you out of order. But he just likes to stir the pot, and maybe you do too, and maybe there are settings where that's okay, but Paul says our focus needs to be allowing peace to umpire and rule in relationships. And then he says, and be thankful. A phrase, a topic that he is going to bring up a couple more times in this passage. But I think in this verse, it's critical because what he is pointing out is it is a whole lot easier to get along with people who are thankful instead of people who are complaining. And again, when I'm doing marriage counseling, very often I will give couples an assignment to go home and write down 10 things for which you are thankful about your spouse. And sometimes they look at me like, I can't think of any. We'll work at it. Think of 10 and then take those 10 and every morning thank God for some of those. You know why? Because if we're thankful for people, it'll flow out in peace and in unity in our relationships. Grace-grounded relationships cultivate real unity. So we need to ask ourselves, is what I'm about to say or is what I'm about to do promoting peace in the relationship at Berean? Is it bringing people together? Work hard at getting along, at looking for ways to connect, and avoid complaining. Several years ago, a lady wrote into a magazine I subscribed to, and she said this, I will not be renewing my subscription because one of your articles said the Apostle Luke. Luke was a Gentile physician and not one of the twelve. Well, duh, that's true, but is that really worth canceling a subscription over because somebody slipped up? And then I thought, I know people who've left churches for less important reasons than that. Paul says, no, no, work at real unity. Grace-grounded relationships also overflow with God's Word. They're marked by biblical truth being spoken to others. And, of course, that fits well with our core value of being all about God's truth. Paul gives a command. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Literally, let the Word of God have ample room. Let it be at home in your heart as a treasured thing. And if the Word is so much at home in our lives that it permeates our whole life like we talked about last week, then it'll impact the people around us. If I say to you, hey, go to my house, here's a key, make yourself at home. When I say make yourself at home, I'm essentially giving you the run of my house. When Paul says the Word of Christ needs to be at home in our hearts, in our lives, he's saying the Word of God needs to have free reign. It needs to be have free run of our hearts, of our lives. And when that's true, it will flow out to other people. We'll minister the Word to one another. We will teach. That's the imparting of truth, imparting of principles. We'll admonish. That's warning and encouraging. And we'll do it in all wisdom. That's taking the truth and applying it practically to life. And notice that's not just done in sermons like this. 
It's not just done in Bible studies or classes. Paul focuses in on singing. He says singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we can try to differentiate a little between those, but I think his point really is in the variety of your singing, let it overflow with the Word of God, with the Word of Christ. And I know and I'm thankful for how hard Pastor Steve works to make sure that's true in what we sing to each other. Because singing to one another is a ministry. It's a way of overflowing God's Word to each other. And when we do that, we're thankful. We have thankful hearts as we sing to God. Grace-grounded relationships overflow with God's Word to each other. And then finally, Paul kind of wraps it all up and and touches a little bit from the first one as he does so, as he says, grace-grounded relationships make Jesus the hero, not us. In the first point that he made, he said, it's not about us, it's about others. Now he says, it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And others, I think, is in his mind. In grace-grounded relationships, we want to please Jesus and help others, not exalt ourselves. And whatever you do, he writes, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him in everything, in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes. We point to His name. We exalt His reputation. Our concern isn't for what we get out of it and our preferences and our rights, but to bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. Our concern is not that that we do what we want, but that others are blessed, and because they are blessed and encouraged, God gets the glory. And when that happens, we give thanks. There's that theme again. The theme we saw last week of our lives overflowing with thankfulness for God's amazing grace to us because we are chosen and holy and beloved. Grace-grounded relationships make Jesus the hero, not me. See, if we're determined not to make it all about me, our relationships will flourish. If our goal is God's glory, not my way, our relationships will flourish. Somebody asked anthropologist Margaret Mead one day, what is a sign of civilization beginning to take hold? And the student probably thought she was going to say something like, you know, we see this advanced pottery or we see the beginning of tools or fish hooks or something. And instead, her response was, the sign of a civilization that's advancing is a healed femur. So he kind of looked at her, what in the world? He said, well, because before civilization begins to take root, it's kind of a dog-eat-dog world out there. But if you see in a skeleton that's found a broken leg that has been healed, you know somebody cared enough to do their hunting and their gathering and take care of them until that leg was healed. That's the mark of civilization. Caring for one another, ministering to one another to make Jesus the hero is the sign of a healed and developing church.
as well. See, our relationships in the church are grounded in the grace that God has given to us in Christ. And as that grace comes to us, it needs to move out and impact our relationship so that we're focused on others and their needs instead of ourselves. So that when we are wounded, and we will be, because relationships are messy, we respond with grace. And we work at bearing with and forgiving each other so that we're cultivating real unity and out of our lives, God's Word that's taken such hold in our lives overflows to other people so that we're ministering the Word of God and cultivating that in our relationship. And we're making Jesus the hero. He's the focus of our attention so that others get ministered to for His glory. The Roman Emperor Hadrian was trying to figure out who these people were in his empire called Christians. And so depending on which version of the story, and there are multiple versions out there, he sent someone to spy on Christians, or there was a Christian that wrote to him. We don't really know which it is, but part of what was written in the report about what Christians are has lived on and been carried on through the centuries because this is the line that everybody remembers Behold how they love one another. We are in a culture that is deteriorating rapidly. The darkness is growing. And you and I need relationships that will cause people to look at Berean Baptist Church and say, those people love each other. And, and they really shouldn't because some of them lost the big game last night, and some of them won the big game last night. They're different in socioeconomic level. They're, they're, they're different in their preferences. They're different in where they live, and yet they love each other. Why? Because we have grace-grounded relationships that are rooted in the grace that's been given to us. And so you and I can step back and we can look at these five marks and we can say, how am I doing with that? What do I need to work on? How can I cultivate better relationships within the body of Christ so that people will look and say, man, they love each other. And if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you don't know Jesus, I want you to understand that we are far from perfect. We don't get our relationships right a lot of the time, but we're working on it, and He's working on us. We are far from perfect, but we have a perfect Savior. And we would love to introduce you to Him. If you'd talk to one of us before you leave, or if you'd call our office if you're watching online. For those of us who know Christ, the goal is grace-grounded relationships, interconnected by God's grace, and then showing that grace as we interact with each other. May that be true of Berean Baptist Church to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for myself as I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would learn more and more and more how to love each other how to forgive each other, how to bear with each other, how to allow grace to flow from us to others in our relationships. 
May we be a light in a dark place because of the relationships that we have grounded in your grace. It's in our Savior's name we pray. Amen.